Welcome to TCN Talks. The goal of our podcast is 15 to 20 minutes of relevant, need-to-know information to help you in your role as a hospice, palliative care, and serious illness leader, and for the team at all levels of the organization. Our goal is concise and relevant information because brevity signals respect. And the bookends of our podcast are always something to make you think deeper about life, about our topic, or both. And now, here's Chris Como. Hello and welcome. Before we get started today, I want to thank our sponsor of TCN Talks, Delta Care RX. Delta Care RX is our title sponsor for our 2023 TCN Leadership Immersion Course and also, of course, all of our TCN Talks podcasts. Delta Care RX is primarily known as a national hospice PBM and a prescription mail order company. Delta Care RX is, a, is the premier vendor of TCN. And they provide not only pharmaceutical care, but also niche software innovations that save their customers time, stress, and money. Thank you to Delta Care X for all the great work they do in end-of-life and serious illness care. Also, just a quick plug, our next TCN Leadership Immersion course is the first week of May. This training has been reviewed as some of the most potent and powerful leadership training in the hospice and palliative care space that leaders have ever been through. Join us. Go to Telios, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. CN.org and look under courses. Also, whatever platform you're using, listening to our podcast, we'd love for you to follow us so you don't miss any of our great episodes. We've got a lot of great ones planned for 2023, including today. So our guest today is Sheila Burke. She's a senior public policy advisor with Baker, Donaldson, Bierman, Caldwell, and Berkowitz. She's also a research faculty adjunct lecturer at Harvard University and a pretty amazing person. I got to hear her at the National Partnership for Healthcare and Hospice Innovation back in D.C. in the fall. So, Sheila, welcome. It's so good to have you today. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, Sheila, first off, what does our audience need to know about you? Gosh, probably the most important thing to know about me is I'm a nurse. Uh, nurse by training, nurse by practice, uh, proud of it, uh, and made the transition to policy work, uh, but never left behind the, the terrific training and exposure that I received when I was in practice, uh, that I've had a terrific opportunity during the course of my career, 20 years on Capitol Hill, uh, to essentially be confronted with and have the opportunity to engage with uh, members on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the hill, around issues of critical concern uh, to nursing and to healthcare care uh, professionals. Uh, and uh, perhaps for this audience, uh, most critically, I have the great opportunity to be involved in the earliest discussions about the creation of a hospice benefit uh, under the Medicare program. Uh, I was at the time working for the Senate Finance Committee and ultimately for the Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole uh, and had uh, the opportunity to be engaged in the conversations that led to the acknowledgement and really the recognition of the importance of the availability of that benefit uh, to Medicare beneficiaries. So I think those are perhaps the most important things. Well, I, we had Tom Casumptos on our last podcast, Sheila, and I gave Tom great kudos, but let me give you kudos. I mean, many of our listeners now in the thousands, I mean, I've been blessed to do this work. I feel like we walk on sacred ground, but to, to think that there may have never been a hospice if yeah. it wasn't for the work that you did, Senator Dole. So just from all of our hearts, thank you. Millions have been touched in an amazing way because of that early work. So Well, we were thank all you. blessed. Uh, and it was an interesting time with some interesting concerns raised, 
at the time. And um, I think at the end of the day, people recognize the work that had been done, the work that came out of Pennsylvania, the work that uh, came out of Cicely Saunders and others, uh, and how important uh, the treatment of individuals who are in those last stages of life is important. Well said. You know, one reason why we created Tilias and even TCN Talks is we think this is a very interesting time that we're alive and um, we exist to help nonprofits thrive into the future. And one of the top challenges we've surveyed many CEOs is the nursing workforce shortage. Yes. And this is what I got to hear you talk about. And so um, it's been on the number one list, I think, for leaders for 2022. And I think what I'm going to call today's uh, talk between us is probably is it a staffing challenge or a staffing crisis? So is it going to get better or is it going to get worse as we go into 2023 and beyond? You know, you raise a terrific question, and it's one that has uh, bedeviled a number of us for a number of years. Uh, this is uh, a crisis that has certainly been exacerbated by the recent events with respect to COVID, uh, but it is one that we've experienced in the past and one I believe that will continue uh, near term and long term. Uh, and the question really becomes how many do we need, what do we need, and what do we need them for? Uh, there is no question that nursing plays an extraordinarily important role in the delivery of health services. If you look at any survey data, nurses are among the most trusted health professionals for a reason. Uh, and as we think about nursing and we think about the preparation of nurses and the experience and opportunities they have, uh, we clearly have to think about the challenges they face uh, and what we've seen in the last couple of years with people leaving the workforce uh, and not simply those who were at retirement age, uh, but rather a younger cohort of nursing uh, that have chosen to leave the profession for a host of reasons. So it's both a, a demand issue in terms of what do we need, and it's a supply issue in terms of are we preparing them. Yeah, well said. What's interesting, Sheila, right before I got to hear you talk at the MPHI meeting in D.C. on our podcast, I don't know if you happen to know Michelle Webb. She knows of you. So Michelle Webb's a professor at Duke. Um, I had the privilege of working with her. She was my chief nursing officer many years when I was still the CEO of Four Seasons. And she mentioned uh, Peter Beerhouse's article, and you did as well when we were together. So can, let's talk about that a little bit because he did some great research. And again, I heard you quote from it in the panel discussion report of. So for those who haven't read the article first, what's the gist of his research article? You know, Peter, uh, who is a, a friend of longstanding, who's now out in Montana, uh, Peter has studied this question of nursing and the nursing profession for a number of years. Uh, began when he was at Vanderbilt, I think, uh, in fact. Um, and it's really a question in Peter's mind uh, of both supply and demand. Uh, and what has been clear in the last few years uh, is the extraordinary demand. We had about uh, 3.5 million nurses uh, in practice, uh, about 400,000 are part-time. And Peter projects growth uh, in terms of the number that are needed and the number that are in fact prepared, uh, but recognizes that the period of time we went through in the early 90s uh, where essentially nurses were discouraged. We saw an extraordinary exit in the number of nurses, uh, a decline in the number of students enrolling in nursing school. Um, and it came in part because of the pressure being placed on nursing because of some of the press uh, about nursing and about the role of nursing. Uh, and Peter indicated in the article that 
we're coming through another period of time where uh, the environment has made it challenging for nursing. Uh, as I indicated, we have people that are coming into retirement age, baby boomers like myself, uh, who essentially are retiring and leaving the workforce. Uh, but frighteningly, we also see younger people who essentially chose nursing but are now choosing to leave. One, it's the work environment in many cases. Uh, COVID put an extraordinary amount of stress on nurses uh, and on their practice settings. Uh, it is also whether or not nursing is a career that people are choosing. Uh, we saw a dip in the number of students that were enrolling in nursing programs. That has begun to change, uh, but still we are uh, pressed to really make nursing as attractive as it can, in fact, and should be in terms of our profession. And that is the responsibilities that are given to nursing as we've developed over time, uh, as you've seen greater and greater preparation, higher degrees, and increasing diversity in the workforce as well. Uh, all of those things, I think, have contributed. But I think what Peter notes is that we are entering into a period of time where, again, you have the aging out of certain populations. You have certainly people choosing less stressful environments, younger people, uh, and that um, unless we can successfully enroll, uh, and that requires a host of things, not the least of which are enough faculty members uh, to essentially prepare nurses, uh, finding enough clinical training sites uh, for nurses to essentially be exposed to training, and really stepping back and thinking about how we are training nurses, certainly differently than when I was trained in San Francisco many years ago. Uh, it's a very different environment today. And the question is, are we keeping up with that? And are we, in fact, able to talk about nursing as a profession that people ought to be interested in, uh, particularly in the desire to have a workforce that reflects the population they serve, uh, but reflects as well the population that's aging? So we need more nurses coming in to essentially help us address that. Wow. Well, Sheila, you know, one of the analogies he uses in the article, and we're actually going to link the article when we do Good. the podcast. And so he, he talks, he uses, a, um, of course, I grew up in South Louisiana. My wife's from Florida. So hurricanes, he uses yeah. a category five hurricane. Um, so that's one of the analogies he uses just to frame the conversation. Of course, the difference is a hurricane hits a targeted area. He says this is going to hit the whole United right. States. And so I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But the other thing he said that just was um, almost scary is I believe it was 2 million hours of experience that is leaving healthcare. Right. And he and talked about how I didn't realize how much retiree nurses were re-recruited yep. because of the ICU experience, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk to that for a second? Because that feels huge, 2 million hours. I mean, I think of someone like your experience, um, we always have the joke, and if you've ever seen the movie, The Matrix, but there's this uh, scene where the woman says, um, or the guy says, do you know how to fly a helicopter? She says, not yet, and they download the helicopter protocol. Her eyes flutter, she could fly a helicopter. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do that, right? But we can't, we know we can. Elon Musk is working on that, but it doesn't exist today. So I think of your years of experience and, and then frame that in 2 million hours of so many incredible nurses, mm -hmm. that feels huge. And so I think it is. Um, and I think the other thing that Peter suggests um, is that with the outflow of those nurses, certainly those that are nearing retirement age, uh, thought given to how you can continue and engage them, uh, that the only option need not simply be retirement, but how else can you engage nurses? 
that by losing some of those nurses that have been in practice for those many years, you are in fact losing ERs, ICUs, uh, you know, uh, the host of expertise, pediatric ICUs, um, you know, cardiac monitoring, all of the things that nurses have done and increasingly taken responsibility for. You lose, I mean, and, and having been a new nurse, having walked into that hospital uh, unit the first time, um, I know what it's like. And that compared to the charge nurse who had been there uh, my, uh, in my unit at Altabates Hospital in Berkeley, uh, had been there for years. I couldn't approximate the knowledge that she had acquired, not simply in the classroom, but clinically at the bedside. And I think what Peter observes is that with these retirements you or the early departures, you're losing an enormous reservoir of knowledge and experience that, in fact, you transfer on to the others that are coming behind you. Uh, and so he raises the question, yes, there are retirements, some obvious, uh, but the question is, how do we utilize that information? How do we utilize that resource? How can we continue to keep them engaged and in, involved um, so that we don't lose all that? Uh, and even in the folks that have been there for five years, 10 years, they have experience that they can transfer on to new nurses coming into practice. Uh, and we can't afford to lose all that because you can't replace it with classroom teaching. Yeah, wow, Sheila, that's great. It's just kind of what you provoked. I and mean, first off, doing this work that we do in hospice, you see many people that look forward to retirement and then they lose that purpose. Right. And unfortunately, then a terminal diagnosis hits. And and it's interesting how we've even have some kind of anecdotal studies where when you re-engage people even around purpose, even with an interesting diagnosis, they will kind of flatline in their disease trajectory. Right. So you know, it, what my mind goes listening to you is interesting ways to engage that experience, but not the typical, hey, can you work a shift? Right. Maybe it's just, can you pick up an experience right. or the phone and call an experienced nurse? Right. Um, like ask a Sheila, can we call the Ask Sheila right. line? Right, exactly. I mean, you create that network uh, that others can draw on. And maybe it's not somebody who's been in practice for 25 years going back to the bedside, but maybe they are the person that essentially you create a team of people to support newer people coming into the system. Uh, you find new opportunities for training environments. I mean, one of the things that, that I'm often uh, thought of is how we need to rethink where and how we train. Um, that bedside nursing is a critical element, uh, but increasingly nursing that occurs outside of the hospital acute care setting nursing that takes place in hospices, nurses that takes place at home, nursing that takes place in the community, that is a, a different but a critically important element of how service is delivered today and how nurses can support one another by being available for a call, being available for consultation, where they may not want to be on a routine sort of every day, five days a week, four days a week, whatever it happens to be, shift, but rather they'll be available for people coming into those communities. And even in the case of a nurse who is experienced, who's been in clinical training and clinical practice for a while, when she or he moves into a new environment, they still need support. I mean, they may have been in, you know, the ER, but now they're moving into an ICU or they're moving into a hospice or moving into a community health center. They still need advice and counsel from those who've been in those environments. And I think we undervalue that kind of knowledge and being able to pass that on. 
That's great, Sheila. Wow. Well, that's a huge pearl. Um, back to the Cat 5 analogy. So is it a Category 5? So the analogy is kind of like right there. I think it was early 2000 he talked about in the article. That was a really tough time. Right, it was. And so are we in a Category 5? And the other thing he kind of talks about in the article is the Johnson Johnson um, whole kind of PSA right. really helped reshape the perception of nursing. And, um, you know, our, our clinical staff has gone through hell the last couple of years, but it probably hasn't helped all the TikToks and how horrible it is. Right. And then, so right now we're in that, and I think he kind of speaks to it without specifically speaking to the TikTok videos, but there's just been a lot of kind of negativity about healthcare and a lot of it justifiable. But unfortunately, if you're trying to recruit the next generation, probably not the best practice. Uh, you know, Peter has touched on that in, in a number of pieces that he's written uh, and talks about that period of time in the early 90s um, when, in fact, it was that profile. Uh, and we saw so many people leaving nursing and choosing not to enroll in nursing schools. Um, I think we are maybe a Category 4 today. Um, I think the last couple of years and all the stories about the extraordinary and brutal challenges that were being faced by clinicians uh, who were caring for COVID patients under the most duress, extraordinary duress. Um, and I think that has, again, led to this um, sense of nursing as a career perhaps not chosen. Uh, years ago, uh, um, the B. Kalish and her husband wrote about the image of nursing. It's an old sort of story, and people my age will probably remember it. And it was all the portrayals of nursing on television that weren't terribly attractive, or they made us all look like fluff. Um, and then you went into this period of time where, you know, strikes and all those challenges. In today's environment, we're in a situation where people are seeing the most extreme circumstances. Uh, the it kind of pressure being put on uh, folks caring for these patients, you know, visuals of, of people in masks and essentially exhausted coming out of a clinical setting, uh, having lost huge numbers of patients. So I think we are in a period of time where the image of nursing and the image of care and how it's delivered uh, is a challenge. Uh, you know, as someone who's some 19 year old who's choosing whether she wants to or he wants to choose nursing as a career, you know, they're looking at this and thinking, do I really want to expose myself, my family, my children? Uh, I mean, you, you hear stories of people losing because they were concerned about exposure for their kids or for their family members. Um, so I think Peter correctly identifies that as a huge challenge for us uh, to begin to look at nursing in a more fulsome way. Uh, and look at the positive opportunities as well as the sort of challenges. I mean, they're not easy jobs uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And it is, in fact, a calling. People choose nursing for yeah. a reason. Um, and we have to remember what that calling is uh, and acknowledge that there will be challenges, but there is a support system uh, among your colleagues uh, that you can draw on. Yep, that's well said, Sheila. My, my old boss, you may know of Quint Studer. Um, I worked for Quint for two years, and you know he wrote a book about the calling. Right. Um, we we were just at Modern Healthcare Best Places to Work in the fall, and his new organization sponsored the event, and he was rehanding out the book of the calling. Right. That's a great prescription, I think, right, right. now. Right. Well, 
I hope our listeners read your bio, Sheila. You get to play in a lot of influential spaces, and, um, and so even your lecturing at Harvard, but also your work at Baker. So what can be done at a national level? Is there some macro things that can be done, public policy, et cetera, that can help? I, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's not only at a federal level, it's also at a state and local level. Um, there are always the inevitable funding questions, and that is how are we providing funds to assist people who choose to go into nursing as a profession. Uh, and one of our goals ought to make sure that our workforce is as diverse as the patients we care for. Uh, and so particular attention to a diversity of population and giving people the opportunity to prepare uh, and to go to nursing school. Uh, there are also the challenges with rural areas around the country uh, and recruiting people from those areas because they're, the instinct is to go back home when you're done. Uh, and so recognizing that we have big shortages not only in urban areas but also in rural areas uh, and essentially preparing people. So that's scholarship money, it's loan money, it's grant money. Uh, we also need support for the faculty we need to prepare a sufficient number of faculty uh, and uh, certainly a sufficient number of nurse researchers uh, who can prepare information and share that information with individuals uh, who are going into practice. There are also all the issues that arose during the COVID and, uh, pandemic about the ability to cross state lines, the ability to practice in more than one setting, uh, the licensure laws, that vary by state. I mean, I'm licensed in California, very different from people who are licensed in other states. Um, you know, what you are able to do is a function of where you are and the state in which you are licensed uh, and real interest in understanding how we make it easier for people to cross state lines or for people to essentially work to the full uh, extent of their license. Um, there are certainly questions being raised about Medicare financing. Uh, and what we recognize, we finally moved away from billing that's incident to, that is incident to the physician's orders and the recognition of independence in many cases. And the fact that we are now delivering care as a team, not individuals. Uh, and we ought to be training people in teams. So part of it is how do we train? What are nursing schools doing? And how are we exposing nursing students to other students? Uh, and the same is true physicians. Um, are, we ex are we really exposing physicians to the team and to working with other professionals? So I think all of those things, so there are state issues that play there, certainly some local issues as well in terms of what clinical sites are available, uh, where we essentially allow people to be trained, uh, what kind of training we expect, the use of simulation uh, in some cases. All of those things, I think, are contributing factors in looking at nursing education going forward. Well, that is excellent. Sheila, I'm going to go back and play this last five minutes like over and over again. That is almost like a, a great platform for whether folks are working on a state or national level for what we should be working towards. Well, and I knew the time would fly with you. Any closing thoughts just related to what we've been talking about today? Perhaps the most important um, thought from my perspective is the importance of nurses being active in a policy environment. Uh, I made a transition from clinical care to full-time policy work, uh, but the bulk of the work really needs to be done that are involved in clinical care and standing up and being heard and being recognized, showing up at town hall meetings. We're going into the 118th Congress, uh, and many governors have tra transitioned, lots of state legislatures, 
Uh, and every time there is a town hall meeting or a discussion about health care, someone in the audience ought to stand up and recognize themselves as a nurse and contribute to that conversation. And it's the responsibility of all of us. It's not just people that are lobbyists by training or the associations. It has to be people that are involved in their communities and involved in those discussions and acknowledging that they are a nurse and they have something to contribute. Uh, and I think if I had nothing else uh, to suggest, it is that, the importance of that, putting a face on nursing uh, and on the patients that you serve. Uh, you can do so much good by essentially being available and being willing to speak up. Wow. Well, Sheila, thank you, because I think you've kind of modeled. Um, I, when I was doing research on you, I swear, and I'm being serious, you're getting younger. Yeah. And that tell, you you look like you're actually getting younger and younger. That tells me you're someone living their cause and purpose. Right, and right. Maybe it when was you look, running the Smithsonian and managing the zoo for a period of time. That probably <laughs> uh, was worth some comic relief. Well, and you, and I'm, hopefully people Google you a little bit. There's a great YouTube. I think it's probably from the fall of presentation you did about some great leadership lessons from your ah, time yes. there. Ah, yes. That was excellent about mentors. And so just thank you for your years of service. And I hope there are many, many more in your future. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed this. And I so enjoyed going to the meeting and seeing so many people involved in hospice. I mean, I think back to the 80s when this conversation began. Uh, it's hard to imagine how far we've come. There was, I'll, I'll leave you with one funny story. There was a long conversation that took place about the structure of the Medicare benefit. And I'll never forget an individual, a member of the Senate who I won't name, who was very concerned about people becoming addicted to drugs. And should be Medicare be providing a benefit where people were addicted to drugs uh, and the use of essentially um, uh, medication as part of the treatment? Uh, and how far we've come in terms of the acknowledgement of the importance of respite care, the importance of essentially uh, treating people humanely during that very difficult period of time. So we've come a long way since the 80s. We have. You know, Sheila, I was actually thinking, I was reading a book. I, I'm a history buff, so my wife gave me some history books for Christmas, and I read a book about Harry Truman. And um, I, you may know this, but the DMZ was very, it was two guys working late at night and very arbitrarily because there was no kind of uh, physical boundaries. So literally that's how we've ended up with the DMZ, DMZ between North Korea. And and I've heard the story about the six-month prognosis and hospice. It's not too different yeah. in terms of where it came from. Exactly. They said... We can't leave this wide open. Right. Well, we got to pick something. Six. Wasn't all this research? Yep. Yeah, six months six. exactly. Why not six? <laughs> exactly. Wow. Exactly. Well, again, thank you for the part that you played. I've been blessed to make this most of my life's work now, 28 years, and never would have thought hospice is what I do with a career. But thinking of all the great work and the amazing people I've worked with and people we've served, you played a part in all that. So again, thank you. Thank you, and thank you again. And for our listeners, I'll leave you with a quote as we always do, the bookend of our podcast. And this one is from Theodore Roosevelt. Do what you can, where you are, and with what you have. Thanks for listening to TCN Talks.